I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. What happens when the bacteria in our digestive tracts gets out of balance? Could viruses that eat them come to the rescue? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Dr. Aaron Elinoff has been studying the microbiome for decades. His latest research involves bacteriophages. These viruses live on specific bacteria. Could we harness them to our advantage? Diet soft drinks are extremely popular. How do the artificial sweeteners they contain affect our microbiome? Not everyone reacts to these sugar substitutes in the same way. Differences in our microbiota help explain why personalized nutrition is so important. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, we learn how we can rebalance our microbiome with nutrients and viruses. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, Australian researchers have found that the impact of COVID-19 infection on the brain could mean trouble in the future. Using laboratory techniques, the scientists grew microglia brain cells and infected them with SARS-CoV-2. In response, the microglia became inflamed, just as they would in a brain-developing Parkinson or Alzheimer's disease. Such neurodegenerative conditions take years to show themselves, with the inflammation slowly but inexorably killing neurons. The spike protein from the virus was enough to trigger inflammation, but the process was more rapid when the cells were already primed to develop Parkinson's disease. One bright spot is a drug currently under development at the University of Queensland to treat Parkinson's disease. It was effective against this brain inflammation. Testing it in mice as well as in microglia cultures, the investigators concluded that this might be a new approach to treating a virus that could otherwise have untold long-term health ramifications. Reports of Paxlovid rebound have made some people reluctant to take this antiviral medication after coming down with COVID-19. They fear that the drug might prolong their symptoms. Researchers at the University of California, San Diego, wanted to better understand the natural course of the infection. They utilized data from people in the placebo arm of a Paxlovid clinical trial. These individuals kept detailed diaries of their symptoms. 30% experienced rebound symptoms after at least two days of feeling better. The most common recurrent problems were cough, fatigue, and headache. The lead author remarked, It's clear that COVID-19 has waxing and waning of symptoms, whether they are treated or not. Pregnant women are frequently admonished to avoid tea and coffee. A study that kept track of their caffeine consumption and followed up the children to the age of eight found that high caffeine consumption resulted in slightly shorter stature, less than an inch by age eight. Weight and body mass index were not different. The investigators note that the height differences were evident even when mothers consumed less than 200 milligrams of caffeine daily. They admit, however, that the clinical implications are not clear. Benzene is a well-known carcinogen. It's not the sort of chemical that you want to breathe or put on your skin. 
That said, it's been discovered in a number of widely used consumer products, including sunscreens, deodorants, and antiperspirants. Valasure is an independent laboratory that tests pharmaceuticals and consumer products for carcinogens. It just filed a, an FDA citizen petition showing that 70% of the 148 batches of dry shampoo products tested contained benzene. Levels were alarmingly high. Some of these products are high-end popular brands. Other dry shampoo products contain no benzene, so this contaminant is not essential to the class. Valasure suspects that the propellants in these aerosol hair products may be the source of the benzene. Butane, isobutane, and propane could be contributing. Many people with the heart rhythm disturbance called atrial fibrillation report poor quality of life and limitations on their activity. Physical activity can improve their situation, but some are reluctant to spend hours every week on exercise. Moreover, their cardiologists have worried that vigorous exercise might complicate their heart arrhythmia. A new randomized controlled trial compared high-intensity interval training to moderate-intensity continuous training among 86 people with atrial fib. High-intensity interval training improved resting heart rate and quality of life equally with substantially less time spent exercising. Though assigned to the high-intensity training spent two 23-minute sessions a week compared to two hour-long sessions of moderate-intensity continuous training, there were only a few adverse events, but more people in the high-intensity group dropped out of the study. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Homeostasis is defined as a self-regulating process by which biological systems strive to maintain stability while adjusting to changing conditions. That nicely describes what our microbiota are doing in our digestive tracts every day. We normally think of viruses as our enemies, especially after COVID-19. But an entire category of viruses, the bacteriophages, help keep our microbiome in balance. How do they do that? To find out, we're talking with Dr. Aaron Elenoff, a professor of immunology and principal investigator at the Weissman Institute of Science in Tel Aviv, Israel, where he co-directs the Personalized Nutrition Project. Dr. Elenoff is also a principal investigator at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg, Germany. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Aaron Elenoff. It's uh, really great to be back with you guys. Dr. Elenoff, uh, I would suggest that you are the world's foremost researcher in the field of the microbiome. You might disagree with me given your humility. But, but that being said, we have been very interested in the microbiome for a very long time, and you've now added a new wrinkle. You, you've added another topic that we have been talking about for decades, bacteriophage 
therapy. Most people, when they think about the microbiome, it's a collection of bacteria like E. coli. But there are also viruses in our digestive tract. How important are they for our health? Well, we've been intrigued with phages for for many years now. And, And phages are viruses which are in fact the most abundant organisms on earth and and they are found wherever there are bacteria including in the human gut attempts um that many people have made to use these viruses that only infect and kill bacteria in treating infectious disease you know go back to the early 20th century right after phages were first discovered but this kind of line of research was abandoned uh when antibiotics were discovered and, and were proven to be so effective but but in, in the last decade, uh, when antibiotic resistance has become a huge emerging problem and, and we're facing uh, bacterial infections that are um, basically cureless because antibiotics are no longer effective, phages have come back to at least theoretically be developed as means of uh, targeting bacteria uh, while being safe to the host because uh, human cells don't have any receptors to phages or to surrounding uh, uh, unrelated bacteria. Um, so, so phages are most common and intriguing and potentially could be used um, as a treatment modality against bacterial infection. I like to think of it as the enemy of my enemy is my friend. A- exactly. And, and when we research the microbiome, which is this huge ecosystem or huge neighborhood of beneficial bacteria that reside at different places in our body and are found to be so important to so many aspects of our health, we are faced with one huge unmet need, which is when we identify a bacteria within this neighborhood, which is bad for us, which contributes to a disease, how do we get rid of this bacteria without impacting the entire neighborhood of bacteria that are so important for our health that surrounds it? And and if you think about it, there's really no means to do it in 2022. And and this is what brought the idea to our mind that maybe we can use phages as a targeted therapy that would be um, possibly able to target a given bacteria within the microbiome without harming the beneficial microbe that's around. So, Dr. Elinoff, please do tell us what you and your colleagues did to investigate that further? Well, first, we we need to understand that while I think this is a cute idea, it is far from easy because we need to understand that there is a constant arms race between bacteria and their major major enemies, which are these phages. And bacteria have developed very effective mechanisms to resist phage infections. Uh, For example, the recently discovered CRISPR system, uh, which have been given the Nobel Prize uh, just a couple of years ago. So, So applying a single phage as treatment to the microbiome or to any infection will universally result in resistance developing in target bacteria that will render it ineffective. And and so that's just one of the challenges. Another challenge is that uh, systemic phage administration results in the development of an immune response against the phages, which limit their their effectiveness. So so these were very big challenges that we had to face in developing this as a first-of-its-kind targeted therapy to the microbiome. So... What we did in, in a nutshell is to uh, first decide to focus on one family of diseases, which uh, are called IBD or inflammatory bowel diseases, 
um, that are very common in humans and are very extensively modulated and associated with changes in the gut microbiome. But we first had to, to identify the target and, and identifying the, the target, the bacterial target that is uh, a bad bacteria in IBD is, is, has been proven to be a daunting task. So what we've done is assemble a very large cohort in four different countries, in the US, in France, in Germany, and in Israel, of, of IBD patients, and we deeply characterized their microbiome. And, and this enabled us to identify strains of commensal bacteria that were strongly associated with IBD across geography, ethnicity, and diet, which was a very big limitation to the field beforehand. And we've identified several bacteria, including one fascinating bacteria called Klebsiella pneumonia, or KP, um, to be very strongly associated with IBD or with IBD exacerbation across geography. And this was just the beginning because this was an association. And as you know from our previous discussions, we really pride ourselves on trying to reach causality. So what we had to do next is to actually isolate hundreds of strains of this KP bacteria from IBD patients and perform extensive experimentation by transferring these bacteria into mice to prove which of the strains of KP are actually causing or contributing to gut inflammation that characterizes uh, IBD. And we, we were very fortunate, and, and this was very surprising to us, to find that one subfamily of Klebsiella pneumonia, which we termed KP2, was the major family which was strongly suggested to impact or to promote uh, IBD, at least in, in mice. And then came the phages. Um, and, and this was the biggest task in, in this whole project, which is how do we develop a phage therapy that would be effective and would not um, allow the bacteria to develop phage resistance? So we had to isolate thousands of phages from samples collected from the Israeli sewer system, from dental waste, and from people's microbiome. We had to grow and to characterize them genomically. And then we engaged in a, in a very prolonged, iterative, mix-and-match set of experiments, which were designed to identify the optimal combination of phages that would target these IBD-associated strains of Klebsiella pneumonia by attacking and killing them uh, through diverse mechanisms. And this was the solution we found to the phage resistance uh, uh, by generating a cocktail of different phages of different phage families that would each attack the same bacteria through different receptors and different mechanisms, thereby not allowing the bacteria to develop resistance that would be effective against all the different phages that are attacking it. We ended up, after uh, this process, which sounds easy but took us four years, with a winner five-phage five uh, cocktail or five-phage combination that effectively suppressed the IBD-causing Klebsiella pneumonia family of strains, both in the test tube and in mice. And then we went on to test these five phages, this cocktail of phages um, in animal models of IBD, and we could demonstrate that they were able to reach the gut, suppress the bad bacteria, suppress the KP strains, and improve the inflammation and tissue damage that this bad bacteria inflicted um, on these mice that, that is very similar to IBD in humans. And finally, we, we did something that's very unique, I think, in this study, which is to go back to the bedside. Um, and we chose a few of these phages that comprise the cocktail, and we tested them first in a human-like gut system, and then in a first-in-human clinical trial in healthy volunteers. And we were able to show that when humans take these phages with antacids that neutralize the acidity in the stomach, which really kills the phages, the phages remain viable and accumulate in the human gut 
in very high concentrations that exceed those that are expected to kill the Klapsiella pneumonia by, by nearly a thousand fold, which, which is a lot. Uh, phage therapy was really safely tolerated by these volunteers and had minimal, minimal impact on the surrounding human, uh, surrounding human microbiome, which is what we expected uh, um, as a targeted therapy. And, and in all, we were actually very surprised by the effectiveness of the final phage combination in specifically eliminating bacteria in the rich microbiome community without having a bystander impact on the good microbes that are unrelated but are critical to our health. Um, so so um, um, with this really long-term and strategic project, I think we are suggesting here um, the first targeted therapy that potentially could uh, be developed not just for inflammatory bowel disease, but for any microbiome-associated disease, including obesity, diabetes, or even cancer, in which we could identify a disease-causing or a disease-modulating bug that we want to eliminate. So, Dr. Elenoff, we don't have time before the break to ask the critical question, which is, did this treatment have clinical effectiveness? Did people get better? So when we come back after the break, I'm going to ask you three questions. Question number one. What is IBD, uh, inflammatory bowel disease? How is it manifested? What are the symptoms? What, how does it disrupt people's lives? And number two, how well did it work clinically to resolve those symptoms? And number three, were there any side effects? So get ready. We're going to be back in just a moment to ask those questions and come up with some interesting answers from you. You're listening to Dr. Aaron Alanoff. He's a professor of immunology and principal investigator at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Tel Aviv, Israel. Dr. Alanoff is also a principal investigator at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg, Germany. After the break, we'll learn more about inflammatory bowel disease. Are there medications that help symptoms, but not the root cause of IBD? Does the treatment Dr. Elinoff is testing show clinical impact for patients? What about traveler's diarrhea? Could bacteriophages play a role in treating it? We'll also learn how artificial sweeteners affect the gut microbiome. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. 
and by Gaia Herbs, providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Could viruses that feed on bacteria be fine-tuned to prevent or even reverse some of the damage the bacteria can cause? We've been hearing about possibly using targeted bacteriophage therapy for inflammatory bowel disease. We're talking with Dr. Aaron Elenoff. He's a professor of immunology and principal investigator at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Tel Aviv, Israel where he co-directs the Personalized Nutrition Project. Dr. Elenoff is also a principal investigator at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg, Germany. His research focuses on understanding the complex interactions between humans and the bacteria that reside in their gut and how these interactions shape human health and disease. So, Let's start at the beginning, Dr. Elenoff. What is inflammatory bowel disease? Because it sounds a lot like, you know, something called IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And people get it confused all the time, but it's not just apples and oranges. It's a whole different. It's con- like ostriches and elephants. It's, it's huge. <laughs> so help us understand how disruptive IBD is for someone's life. Yeah, so... so- Exactly as you say, IBS and IBD are completely different gastrointestinal um, diseases. Um, IBD, or inflammatory bowel disease, is a relatively common inflammatory disorder that is comprised of several discrete clinical diseases. One of them is called Crohn's disease, rather famous. Another is called ulcerative colitis. And and there are people that have um, a a disease that is somewhere in between. Um, And in general, this is um, a group of diseases that mainly affect the gastrointestinal tract, but can also affect organs outside of the gut. Um, and, and people that, that suffer of uh, uh, the different types of IBD suffer from a variety of gastrointestinal manifestations, from, from diarrhea, um, in severe cases uh, from bowel obstructions, and from um, general manifestations of inflammation, including in children, uh, failure to grow and, and others. So these are quite severe diseases. And, um, you know, while we increasingly understand what causes these diseases, and we know that the microbiome is part of the equation in causing these diseases, the only set of treatments that that are available to people are ones which curve down or or suppress the inflammation. We we do not have a disease which actually cures IBD or stops the basic causes that bring it about. So we have we have drugs that'll help the symptoms, but we don't have any drugs that actually address the root cause, which, as I understand it, is a disruption of the immune system. Is that correct? It's it's uh, it's correct. It's a disruption of the immune system, but at the basis of this uh, um, immune system disruption, there are two major factors uh, which play uh, a substantial role together. One is a genetic susceptibility, and we know of hundreds of genes that when, are, uh, when they are altered um, make people susceptible to inflammatory bowel disease, but this by itself is not enough to um, uh, cause this disease. And on top of the genetic susceptibility, we know that people who do get IBD have an environmental insult, which we believe is mediated by factors such as their nutrition, their gut microbes, and other factors which we are still unaware of. So, 
fast forward to bacteriophage therapy. The phages, the the five phages that you put together, and that's P-H-A-G-E-S. And I have to be honest, what you're describing is clearly Nobel Prize winning research uh, if, big if, it has a clinical impact. So did you observe anything in your preliminary studies that would lead you to think it might have actual benefit where patients who are suffering say, oh, Dr. Elenoff, you have changed my life? Well, we need to be careful. So um, when when we came up with the out-of-the-box idea and developed it, which, which really took us seven years of work, we started from the bedside by really deeply characterizing the gut microbes of hundreds of, of IBD patients and controls in four different uh, uh, countries, and then targeting one of the bacteria which seemed to be um, um, strongly associated with IBD exacerbation, which is Klebsiella pneumonia, and then developing the phage therapy and testing it in mice. So in mice, uh, uh, we were able to show all the way that the uh, human uh, um, strains that were isolated from IBD patients were indeed making inflammation in the gut worse. And when we added the five-phage combination that we've uh, developed, it suppressed the bad bacteria and suppressed the inflammation that these bad bacteria uh, were causing. And we then went back to the human setting and tested these phages in healthy volunteers, because this is what you do in a first in-human trial to, to be very careful and, and to prove safety. And there we found that um, the phages were exceedingly safe to individuals. We did encounter any severe adverse effect in people taking the phages as compared to, to people taking placebo, people taking just the, the, um, the, the liquid in which the phages were dissolved. And we found that the phages were not inducing any nonspecific impacts on the microbiome that, that were unrelated to their effect against Klebsiella pneumonia. What we still haven't done is the phase two study in which we would test this uh, five-phage combination against um, the Klebsiella pneumonia in IBD patients that carry Klebsiella pneumonia and, and then test their effectiveness in suppressing the bad bacteria and see what it does to um, disease severity. This is the phase two trial, which we're starting right now as a result of the completion of the safety studies uh, that are already done. So that that clinical piece is just getting underway at this point. Exactly. So um, um, th- there are two major efforts that we're engaged with, uh, uh, engaging. Uh, one is to go forward with this five-phase combination. Now that we know that they're safe and we know exactly how to give it to individuals to optimize their good concentrations in the gastrointestinal tract and to test them in the real disease setting. This is one effort. And the second effort, which is done in parallel, is to develop new generations of phage cocktails that can target other Klebsiella clades or even the entire Klebsiella species, as well as developing phage cocktails targeting other disease-causing gut microbes, including commensals that are associated or implicated in metabolic disease, inflammatory disease, cancer, and other diseases. So all of these efforts uh, are now underway by us and by an increasing number of uh, other groups across the world who are following up on on our our work. Well, we're not going to hold our breath, but we are going to keep our fingers crossed because, as I suggested, this is Nobel Prize winning research. And we look forward to talking to you about the outcome of these clinical trials. 
I have a slightly odd question that doesn't have nearly the significance of inflammatory bowel disorder disease. It's something that has a lot of different names around the world. In Mexico, people sometimes have called it Montezuma's Revenge. In other parts of the country or the world, uh, we've heard all kinds of other phrases, but it boils down to something referred to as traveler's diarrhea. And I'm assuming that in many places around the world, people have somehow come to some balance with the environment that they live in, the, the food, the water, the bacteria that they're exposed to. And don't have, you know, daily diarrhea, but somebody comes in from abroad, a different country, a different culture, a different bacterial setting. And now all of a sudden they're suffering from a horrific traveler's diarrhea. And sometimes it can be quite challenging. Uh, it sounds like, you know, not, no big deal. But for some folks, it can be very, very severe and they go home with it and it may not always go away. I'm just curious if you've ever thought about traveler's diarrhea and how cultures adapt to their bacterial environments and whether or not uh, phages are involved in places where people no longer have a problem, where they've somehow managed to adapt. That's a fascinating question. And, and actually, it's a very good question. Um, you know, the way I see traveler's diarrhea, which is the a very common disease um, um, impacting many people who travel between different environments is that, you know, you, you come from the U.S. and let's say you travel to Israel and you come with your American microbiome, uh, which is equipped and used to your American diet and to your American lifestyle. And all of a sudden, this microbiome meets the Israeli microbiome, uh, which is an exceedingly different microbiome. You know, it's used to hummus and to other, to other goodies that maybe are less uh, popular in the, in the U.S., and, and now there is a clash between cultures uh, in terms of the microbes. Um, and, you know, what most people do is they try to avoid the, the new microbiome um, by, by, you know, uh, not eating the food in the street and so on and so forth. And at the end, what, what happens is that they encounter a bad bacteria, a pathogen, and then they develop diarrhea, which, which is what we call travels diarrhea. What we repeatedly see is that if we would develop means of quickly transforming your American microbiome to an Israeli microbiome once you travel to Israel, then once, once this microbiome is replaced or adopted, then you're Israeli and, and, and you shouldn't have any travels diarrhea, but it is this transition that, that is making all the trouble. And, and there are many different ways to deal with this uh, transition. Um, none of them are very much evidence-based, but you're absolutely right that phages could play a role because we know that Within our gastrointestinal tract, in, in addition to the thousands of different bacteria that we host, we have phages that have a tendency to go up and down in what we call blooms, in which they, of course, impact different bacteria within this uh, neighborhood of, of, uh, of trillions of bacteria. And it could be that phages that we encounter by traveling to another country impact our microbiome in ways which promote this tendency for traveler's diarrhea. Uh, whether uh, this is the case uh, or whether we could even become more ambitious, we could develop page cocktails that would facilitate the healthy transition from one microbiome into another is, um, is an open question. But I think it's a fascinating question, uh, uh, attesting to the possible impacts of phages in modulating and shaping our unique personalized microbiomes. 
Dr. LNF, we actually want to switch gears now and talk about a whole different uh, angle of research that you and your colleagues in your laboratory have been pursuing. And it's very interesting and very exciting. You have recently published a study on artificial sweeteners. And uh, you've looked at how these compounds affect metabolism in humans. There was previously a fair amount of research on rodents, but rodents, you know, they're easy to study, but they don't, the results don't always translate. We are, we, we are similar to rats and mice, but we are not rats or mice. So please do tell us about those artificial sweeteners that we find in our diet soda or in those little packets that uh, we might add to our coffee or tea. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and in fact, in 2014, we have uh, published um, a paper in Nature um, in which we studied um, artificial sweeteners uh, in mice. Very surprised to find out that while these compounds are suggested or, or presumed to be inert to the mammalian body, they were far from being inert to the mouse microbiome, and they're induced individualized metabolic outcomes in these mice uh, depending on the different microbiomes that they carry. So, so this was a kind of an ambitious study. And, and you're right that the biggest criticism that we've received at the time is that mice are not human, which is completely true, uh, but it motivated us to perform um, a large set of human clinical trials to see whether the findings that we observed in mice are also true in humans, which of course carries not only a scientific a set of implications, but a very important set of implications for human health and, and for diet. And we need to remember that artificial sweeteners are consumed by billions of people worldwide to, to generate a sweetness that we all crave with the hope that we would not have to pay the caloric price of sugar. But, but we really don't know if these compounds impact our gut microbes and through them may impact our body and health. So, so to answer this question in the human setting, we had performed in the last, again, in the last seven years, a large controlled clinical trial in which we've uh, tested um, in a large group of healthy individuals, uh, uh, the consumption of one of four commonly used uh, sweeteners, saccharin, sucralose, aspartame, or stevia, uh, which were given in packets to these individuals for a period of two weeks. And, and we used very stringent controls in, in other individuals. And to our utter surprise, our results strongly suggested that the gut microbes and the molecules that they secrete into our blood were altered in all four groups of uh, non-nutritive sweetener or artificial sweetener consumers in each in a very unique way because each of these uh, uh, sweetener compounds is, is chemically different. And, and these changes did not occur in the control group. And, and this meant that artificial sweeteners are not inert to the human microbiome. Now, we've also tested the effect of these, the, the consumption of these sweeteners and their um, impacts on the microbiome with respect to their glycemic effect on how they impact the control of blood sugar, which is what we've seen in mice uh, a few years earlier. And again, we were surprised to find that consumption of two of the artificial sweeteners um, induced an alteration in um, blood sugar control. And these were people who consumed a saccharin and sucralose. Um, and this was the average of the entire group, but, but this was not present in people consuming aspartame or stevia or people consuming um, the various controls that we've used. And, and this suggested that the glycemic responses induced by saccharin and sucralose may be more pronounced when assessed at the group level. W with that said, 
when we assess the contribution of the microbiome to, to these uh, uh, disturbances in blood sugar control by performing transplantation of the gut microbes from consumers, from human consumers of artificial sweeteners into sterile germ-free mice who never consumed any artificial sweeteners, we were amazed to find that recipient mice developed disturbances in their blood sugar control that largely reflected those of the human consumers in all four artificial sweetener groups. And, and these were highly personalized. So, so uh, when uh, we transferred the microbes from people who featured a, a severe disturbance in their blood sugar control after consuming each of these four artificial sweeteners into germ-free mice, the recipient mice developed the same severe disturbances as the humans who donated these gut microbes. And when we did the same with people who didn't respond, the mice didn't respond. And, and this told us that, that everything here was highly personalized. Now, Dr. Elanoff, we are going to take another break. But when we come back, I'm going to ask you whether the artificial sweeteners had a good or positive impact on blood sugar or maybe a negative impact. Because I think an awful lot of people think that artificial sweeteners are going to either prevent or save them from diabetes. And we need to get your answer in a moment. You're listening to Dr. Aaron Elinoff, a professor of immunology and principal investigator at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Tel Aviv, Israel, where he co-directs the Personalized Nutrition Project. Dr. Elinoff is also a principal investigator at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg, Germany. His research focuses on understanding the complex interactions between humans and the bacteria that reside in their gut and how these interactions shape human health and disease. After the break, we'll talk more about sugar-free foods and how they affect blood sugar control. How much artificial sweetener did the study participants get? How will we know if these sugar substitutes are helpful or safe? Not everyone reacts the same way. Why is personalized nutrition so important? How can listeners find the best dietary approach for their particular metabolism? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, 
offering its cardio health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols in powder and capsule form. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, we're learning how our gut microbiome maintains a homeostatic balance and what can be done if it gets out of whack. Our guest is Dr. Aaron Elinoff, a professor of immunology and principal investigator at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Tel Aviv, Israel, where he co-directs the Personalized Nutrition Project. Dr. Elinoff is also a principal investigator at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg. His labs focus on deciphering the molecular basis of host microbiome interactions and their effects on health and disease with a goal of personalizing medicine and nutrition. He's co-author with Dr. Aaron Siegel of The Personalized Diet, the pioneering program to lose weight and prevent disease. Dr. Elinoff, I think a lot of people use artificial sweeteners or diet soda or artificially sweetened, you know, sugar-free uh, yogurt or whatever it is they're eating, sugar-free pudding, um, they're using it because they think it won't raise their blood sugar. They're using it either as a way of controlling their weight, perhaps, or because they actually already have diabetes and need to really be on top of their blood sugar. So what you're suggesting is actually pretty alarming, isn't it? It is. And, and to be honest, um, both in the human experiments and in the mouse experiments, we have not seen any good impacts of artificial sweeteners in the settings that we've tested on blood sugar control. So there was either no control or bad impacts on, on sugar control. Um, with that said, I think we need to be very careful. And, and I think that the major clinical conclusion of, of, of our studies is that they call for further randomized non-industry-sponsored interventional studies to be performed in, for example, at-risk populations such as diabetics and, and pre-diabetics and, and, and to test, you know, other sweeteners, other formulations, other doses and so on and so forth. How much artificial sweetener were these people getting? Did you really have to push the dose a lot? No, we didn't. Um, so in contrast to the 2014 paper in which we gave mice quite high concentrations of, of uh, sweeteners because we, we didn't know what would, you know, what would be effective. Um, in this human trial, we made sure to give people a level, levels of sweeteners that were way below the, the daily um, allowance, the daily recommended allowance for this compound. So uh, for each of these sweeteners, each of the individuals consumed six packets a day of a respective sweetener for a period of two weeks. Now, Dr. Elinoff, it may seem obvious to you, and it does to us, but maybe it's not obvious to everyone. Why is it important that these studies not be sponsored by the industry? Well, you know, when there is a very large financial interest to, you know, promote the consumption or the sell uh, of a particular compound, you know, we know that, that the, the design of studies and also the way they're perceived by the scientific and medical communities could be impacted. So in such a sensitive and controversial uh, a topic that, that is pertinent to the lives and, and health of, of so many people, 
I personally believe that it would be best performed um, by a group of, of, of scientists and, and medical experts that, that you know, are not associated with the industry and therefore you know, come without any um, pre-existent expectation. I, I think that it is also important to note that with all the results that we highlighted in these uh, studies, sugar consumption still constitutes a very bad and very well-proven health risk for obesity, diabetes, and their life-risking implications. And so our findings do not support or promote the consumption of sugar in any form or shape. We, we strongly believe that sugar consumption should be minimized and avoided as much as possible. But we know that artificial sweeteners, at least the ones that we've tested, may not be the proper replacement. So, so you know, we promote water, but we, we hope that, uh, you know, better artificial sweeteners and better formulations would be developed uh, in the future, hopefully. That is an important point. And, and I think your other point that when you have an industry that is making so much money from artificial sweeteners because there is the implicit idea that, well, you'll lose weight, you'll be able to control your diabetes better, but we don't have that data. Um, we need it in order to be able to tell people, sorry, there is no free lunch, pardon that awful overused phrase. Uh, so the, the bottom line is we're still waiting for that research in order to be able to know if what you've discovered uh, pans out in large, well-controlled trials. I, I couldn't agree more. And until we reach this point in which the long-term clinical trials are completed, you know, a healthy caution is advised. So we shouldn't assume that they're safe until proven otherwise, but the contrary. We, 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 like we do in every untested or, or not sufficiently tested uh, medical treatment, you know, we need to assume that something is unsafe until we prove that it is safe or we understand at least what the adverse effects are and take them into consideration. Dr. Elenaf, you said something earlier that I think we, we'd like to explore just a little bit further. You said the personalized response. So the when you gave the mice the um, microbiome from people who had been using artificial sweeteners, the mice responded as the individuals did. And you mentioned that that there's an overall group average response, but it, it, it isn't the same for everyone. Can can you please walk us through this idea of a personalized response? Absolutely. And and this is this is um a concept which I'm very proud of because we've kind of developed it uh, close to a decade ago as part of the, the personalized nutrition concept. And in fact, um this artificial scrutiner study in mice was the first to show this personalized effect, which was so surprising to us. And, and when we focus on, on these studies, the, the current uh, artificial uh, sweetener studies, what, when we followed the law of averages, we saw that two of the sweeteners as group in people who consume them induced disturbances in sugar control that were larger than the two other sweeteners and, and in the control population. So, so that if, if we were to stop there, it would imply that uh, probably saccharin and, and sucralose induce changes that are more alarming than those induced by um, aspartame and stevia. However, when we took it one step further and we transferred the microbiomes from a large group of individuals who consumed each of these four sweeteners and responded either in a bad way or did not respond at all, and we transferred them into sterile germ-free mice, 
that don't have any microbes of their own and never saw in artificial sweeteners. They only saw the microbes that came from artificial sweetener consumers. We saw that mice responded in a very similar way to the way the humans uh, that donated their gut microbes to these mice responded. In other words, when um, we took uh, the microbiomes from people who uh, developed alterations in their blood sugar control upon consumption of aspartame, for example, and we transfer them into germ-free mice, the mice develop alterations in their blood sugar control, which means that we should gradually shift from looking at the averages of groups of individuals into their person-specific effect. Um, and, and this is, I think, a, a nice example of, of this concept because it teaches us that people are not equal in their responses to artificial sweeteners. You can have two people consuming the same exact amount of stevia and one person would have a microbiome that would induce disturbances in their blood sugar levels, while another person consuming the same exact preparation of stevia would have a different microbiome that would not do this. And, and, and this is what we've been able to prove in these uh, uh, studies. And, uh, but this also has a, a promising uh, side to it because it, it tells us that maybe in the future, we would be able to use the data stored in our unique microbiome in order to harness different diets to the individual. In other words, tell uh, a given individual which of the sweeteners he or she could consume or which food combinations he or she could consume that would minimize their disturbances in blood sugar control or any other parameters that we would measure. And Dr. Elenoff, that brings me to your second Nobel Prize, which should be for your personalized nutrition research. It's not just artificial sweeteners. You discovered that some people respond to certain foods in a completely different way than other people. It seems like it should be obvious, but you've actually proved it. So for some people, mashed potatoes will raise their blood sugar like crazy. And then you would think, well, everybody will have a rapid increase in blood glucose after a big bowl of ice cream. But you found that some people don't react to ice cream the way other people do. Could you give us a little sense of this whole notion of glycemic control, blood sugar reaction to different foods, and why personalized nutrition is so very important? Uh, absolutely. And, and in fact, back in 2014, um, the, the animal studies on artificial winters provided us the first example of this personalized nutritional effect. But then We've engaged in a large-scale human clinical trial called the Personalized Nutrition Project, in which we tested many different uh, uh, foods and food components on a large cohort of close to 1,000 human individuals. And we found that, indeed, the variability in people's responsiveness to the same exact food is, is mind-blowing. And this brings into question the entire paradigm that we followed for many decades, in which we kind of tried to make our healthy diet by combining different numbers that we gave different food components, such as calories or glycemic indexes that are given to different food components, uh, which were mixed and matched in trying to, to generate a healthy diet. And what this surprising result told us is that perhaps rather than giving just numbers and, 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 and values to the foods, we also need to give numbers and values to the individuals that eat these foods. And this is exactly what we did using artificial intelligence and machine learning in generating a big data, a big data driven um, algorithmic approach that enabled us to predict the pe people's uh, 
uh, a response to any given food. And, and this was maybe the, the first step that ended up uh, um, with the generation of the personalized nutrition uh, approach, which is now being followed up and researched by many groups around the world. Well, of course, this begs the question that all of our listeners are now asking, and that is, well, how would I know what are the good foods that I should be eating, whereas my next-door neighbor would probably not do so well? And it makes me wonder if we shouldn't have blood glucose monitoring for lots of people, even people without diabetes, so we could learn, well, those mashed potatoes are not a problem for me, but if I were to have uh, carrot juice, it might cause problems. Is there some way to have our listeners figure out what the best dietary program or approach would be for their particular metabolism? It's a wonderful uh, uh, question, and um, there, there are different facets of what people can do. The fancy way of, of, of uh, kind of generating um, a day-to-day -day insight from, from, from these discoveries utilizes very sophisticated machine learning algorithms that take, uh, for example, people's uh, microbiomes and other clinical features and uh, generate uh, fancy algorithms that enable them to plan a personalized lifestyle, a personalized dietary uh, approach for themselves. And this is now uh, being made available by several uh, spin-off companies, uh, such as uh, uh, Zoe and uh, uh, Day2 and Hello Inside, and, and, and there is a growing number of, of commercial entities that are based on, on discoveries made by us or made by others that, that basically follow the same paradigm and, and are, are uh, gradually upscaling this uh, to the large population. There are more basic uh, approaches that people can do in their home that can also benefit them uh, uh, without having you know, to pay the prices and, and, and to go all the way. For example, one could purchase in their local pharmacy a simple glucose uh, sensor or glucose monitor, you know, a skin prick kind of type of uh, glucose uh, level uh, calculator, and basically test themselves in their daily diet. So you eat your daily breakfast, and then you measure your uh, blood sugar before, during, and after uh, you ate this uh, particular breakfast of yours, and, and all of a sudden you would see that uh, a particular breakfast that you thought is perfectly healthy for you results in a huge spike in your blood sugar. And, and now you can change components within your breakfast and retest this and kind of uh, uh, get to a um, situation in which you modified your breakfast without having to, you know, not have breakfast, but, but uh, making different changes, different combinations, and, and improving uh, your glycemic control to your own breakfast. So, so you know, th this um, involves some work, and, uh, uh, but it's much cheaper than um, using those commercial entities, which are more accurate and, and less invasive and, and basically would give you um, a prediction to any food, including foods that you've never eaten, which, of course, is, is a big advantage. It sounds as though what you need, in addition to your blood glucose monitor, is a curious mind and a dedication to recording your results. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, when we did this on ourselves, when we started this project almost a decade ago, I, I remember myself being amazed by the fact that, you know, my responses to the same exact food were completely different than the ones of my lab mates or, or my colleagues. 
that were sitting right next to me and eating the same exact food. And, and this, for me, was a eureka moment that told us, you know, that everything that we believed, which is, you know, that the foods make the difference, but we should all react the same to the same food, is, is probably not accurate to say the least. Dr. Elenov, thank you so much for talking with us today on the People's Pharmacy. I have to tell you, uh, you should be in line for two Nobel Prizes, <laughs> and I'm looking forward to hearing the announcement. But first, we look forward to talking with you again as soon as you have some clinical trial data on your five-phase therapy for inflammatory bowel disorder. Dr. Aaron Elenov, thanks so much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. Thank you, guys. It's always a pleasure to be speaking to you. You've been listening to Dr. Aaron Elinoff, a professor of immunology and principal investigator at the Weissman Institute of Science in Tel Aviv, where he co-directs the Personalized Nutrition Project. Dr. Elinoff is also a principal investigator at the German Cancer Research Center in Heidelberg. His research focuses on understanding the complex interactions between humans and the bacteria that reside in their GI tracts and how these interactions shape human health and disease. You'll find a link to his recent publication on sugar substitutes at our website, peoplespharmacy.com. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. The herb of the month is astragalus. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. Today's show is number 1,321. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments. Let us know what you think about today's show. Or if you prefer, you can send us email, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you also have regular access to our weekly podcast, you can find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.